you guys can open up to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is where we're going to be. We're actually going to take a break from our series on the attributes of God. I had planned to jump into that uh, this week and just kind of keep on uh, rolling with that. I had told you a couple weeks ago that's what we would do, picking back up uh, after worship serve. But uh, the last couple of weeks, I feel like God has laid something else on my heart for just uh, a couple of weeks that will actually kind of serve as a, a way to to help us pull back just a little bit and then ramp back into that series on the attributes of God for the fall. Uh, so this is really just kind of a step back, catch our breath before we uh, dive back in, and we'll do that very soon. But we're going to be in John chapter 6, and we'll get there here in just uh, a minute. Growing up, I spent my life, uh, at least my weekends, uh, at, at ballparks. Uh, during the week, I was practicing, but on the weekends, it was game time, and I spent my week playing baseball. Basically, every weekend from March until July, I was on a ball field uh, somewhere playing uh, baseball. And inevitably, what would happen, especially if you were at a tournament, is that you would have uh, a morning game, and then you wouldn't play again until later in the afternoon, and then depending on how you did, you wouldn't play, you would play again later in the evening. And so what that uh, results in is a lot of downtime at ballparks. And what happens when you have downtime at ballparks is you end up on the playground. And when you end up on the playground, you have all kinds of things that can happen, especially whenever you've got a, a group of guys that are uh, trying to figure out how tough they can be and how uh, macho they can be on the, the playground. And the the bad thing about this is that the playground in the 80s, when I would have been playing in the early 90s, was not exactly uh, safe. I don't know how else to describe it. It wasn't plastic. It wasn't little tykes type stuff. And it wasn't stuff that had, uh, had been approved by any type of uh, legal litigation. It was stuff that somebody made and they said, this looks like this is going to be fun. And so uh, you guys remember some of these, like the way too high slide. Uh, that was uh, made of, of metal that inevitably would be about 400 degrees uh, if it had been in the sun at all. Uh, you, if you made it up to the top of that ladder and then didn't manage to fall off, you would have to go down the, the chute of flame in order to get down it and hope that you had shorts. You, I had baseball pants on, so we were good. Uh, but like if you were my, my sister who was there all day long too, and she tried to slide down that thing, uh, it was going to hurt. It was going to burn. So you guys remember the old school uh, slide and, and what that was. Uh, and then they also had the, the seesaws. Uh, this is the best picture I could find. But I promise you, when I was a kid, the, the seesaw had to be bigger than that. Uh, because if you were on the high end of the seesaw, that was terrifying. Because if you got up there, you were fully at the mercy of whatever jerk was on the other end of the seesaw. Uh, you were fully at their mercy, and there was nothing you could do about it. You could either jump off and, and look like a wimp, or you just had to pay close attention to make sure that they didn't uh, catch you while you were distracted and drop you uh, so that you could break your tailbone. I know they were bigger than that. They had to be because I was higher than that. I know uh, that, I, that I was. Um, and then, of course, the funnest death trap that there was uh, is the old-school merry-go-round. Now... They all look like that. The amount of rust that they would have, I don't, I don't know what they looked like when they began. Maybe they began in like the 40s or the 50s. But by the time they got to, to me in the 80s, they were all covered in uh, rust. You needed a tetanus shot just to get on one. And they were fun. 
you always would get going as fast as you can. You would get the strong, fast kid to start pushing you and running as fast as they could going around. And if they were good and athletic, they could jump on and ride with you. If not, they just fell on their face uh, while you just kept spinning around fast as fast as you could be. And the goal was to see how long you could hold on without getting thrown off of the thing or uh, just vomiting right there uh, in, in the place. And these things were dangerous. And the thing is about these things, if you're like eight, nine years old, you don't think things are dangerous. You think they're fun. But even eight and nine-year-olds were like, that thing's scary, and that thing's pretty dangerous. So you know that something is probably dangerous when even the eight-year-olds are like, are we allowed on this thing? Should they really have this thing out here? Like, even, even the, the, the eight-year-olds are like, I'd want to make wise choices in life. And I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of liability that comes along with this thing. There's nothing else that makes a kid think that way. But I remember thinking through that when I was a kid. Like, they probably shouldn't have this thing out here. It's really dangerous, and somebody's going to get hurt. And that's when I would usually be like, hey, guys, y'all hop on. I'll push. And then I would push and just see how fast I could get everybody going so that I didn't have to worry about uh, dying. And so when I got a little bit older, though, we moved on from the merry-go-round to the teacups at the amusement park. Now, there's different types of teacups. It depends if you're going to Dollywood, if you're going to Disney, or if you're going to, like, the county fair. Like, the county fair-level teacups existed for one reason, and that was to make you throw up. That's the only reason that they existed. Uh, and, and for some reason, uh, and I can't really figure it out, I think maybe the main reason that these, these teacups I- exist is so that teenage boys could prove to their girlfriends just how manly they were. This is what you would inevitably end up watching is uh, a, a couple of guys and a couple of girls would get on the teacup and then the guys would grab onto this metal rail, at the, the metal thing in the middle, and they would just pull as hard as they can to get going as fast as they can, convinced that if they could make that thing go fast enough, that their, uh, their girl of choice would swoon over them because they could, they could get them going to like two or three Gs of centripetal force as they, they went around. And I, it, it really just made the girls mad. But for some reason, every teenage boy is convinced that's how they could impress uh, their, their girlfriend. Uh, it was what they thought they needed to do to make her feel good about their choice. Because he was, he was big, strong, and rude. So he could do all those things, and so they had to like him. What else could a gal want besides that? So you, you move on from the merry-go-round to the, the, the teacups. Uh, but, but nowadays, I can't do any of that stuff. Like, I can't do anything that spins in circles. I still love roller coasters. I'll get on any roller coaster. I love them. Those are fun. Uh, I really enjoy uh, that. But anything that spins in a circle, I'm done with that. I cannot handle that. I don't know what it is about getting older and whatever the thing is in your inner ear that makes you, like, woozy and dizzy. But I remember the last time that I got on the teacups at Dollywood with my kids, and I'm like, I'm going to make this thing go fast. And about seven, eight revolutions in, I was like, this is not going to end well for me at all. And I knew it wasn't going to end well for me. And so the rest of the time I was like, that we were at at Dollywood, I was walking around just not feeling great. And I knew that my teacup days were over. Because as soon as that thing started, I'm like, all right, kids, I'm going to make you all really, really scared. They were having fun. I was not. I was just trying to figure out, when does this thing end I want off this ride. I realize I'm the one that made it go fast. 
but I just want off the ride now. Just stop this thing. Like looking at the, the booth with the lady that's in the booth, just looking like if I could make myself look sad enough, maybe she would be like, oh, we'll end this thing early for this poor guy. Like just stop the ride so I can get off. And I wonder how many of you are thinking that about the year 2020 right now. Just stop this ride. I want off. 2020 feels like it's one of those dangerous pieces of playground equipment just waiting to strike its next unexpected victim. And we're all just trying to survive at this point. Maybe the summer gave you a little bit of a reprieve. I think it did give us a little bit of a reprieve as a family. And yet here we sit on August the 2nd, and school's about to start back. And it feels like, to me, that moment when you hop on that merry-go-round and somebody's about to start pushing, and you know there's a good chance this may end poorly for me. But you can't stop it because you're already committed. Like, you, you kind of have to go. That's where, where I feel personally. That's where I feel like I am right now. This thing is about to go, and the jerk of a boyfriend is about to start making this thing spin really fast again. Now, maybe you're not on the school calendar. Maybe your world never stopped spinning. Uh, maybe your spin cycle began uh, before 2020. Ours feels like it started somewhere around July of 2019 with Emily's health issues. But it just won't seem to stop. And even the most positive among us has to admit that everything feels like chaos most of the time. And that it seems like things are only about to spin even faster. Eight months ago, we kicked off the year with so much optimism and hope. You know, that's what each year brings in January. This, we, we talk about this every year here at Providence. We talk about resolutions. We talk about resolve and what would propel us into a new year. And if you'll remember, our series back in January, our series back in January was All In for 2020. All In for 2020. You guys remember that? That's how we started back in January. I don't know if you remember this. In my time, or, or my, my challenge at the time is that we talked about the rich young man that came to Jesus and had a question to Jesus, how can I have eternal life? How can I be saved? And Jesus said, go sell all your stuff. And then the rich young ruler walks away sad because he knew that what Jesus asked was too much. Do you guys remember covering that one? That's what we talked about. And we talked about what it would look like for us to go all in on this year, 2020. So my question for you this morning is, how's that going for you? How are you doing in 2020 so far? Now, I'm not coming, I, I, I'm not coming at you here, so, so, so don't, don't get your defenses up being like, come on, man, I, what am I supposed to do here? I'm not coming at you. I'm not trying to beat anyone down. I just, I just want to ask you here on August the 2nd of 2020, how is that going? And in fact, what I want to do this morning is I want to quote myself in a sermon, which I know sounds horribly arrogant, but I want to quote myself in a, uh, in a sermon here, uh, and, and I want to, uh, and maybe this, I shouldn't be doing that, but I'm going to, and, and I want to read my closing, my, my closing statement at the end of that all-in series, my challenge to you for 2020. This was given on the first Sunday in February, Super Bowl Sunday. Here was the challenge. This is a bit of a paraphrase, but it's pretty close. 
Here's what I said. I said, my heart in this series is, is, you, is that you would not walk away with sorrow, but instead that 2020 would be the year that you finally say, I'm all in. That you would die to yourself, die to your ideals, die to your passions, die to your agenda, and that you would embrace the call to be a disciple and go all in. That years from now, you would look back on 2020 and say, that was it. That was when God showed me what it looked like to be all in and oh, the joy that I found in 2020. We're one month in, you've got 11 more to go. So let's go all in together. That was my closing challenge. It's almost impossible for me to read those words and not laugh just a little bit. The optimism is, is, is there. It was a good challenge to put forth to say, let's do this. You feel that kind of optimism, but the reality is you don't know what you don't know, right? Our ignorance is always on display, the bliss of our ignorance in those moments. The second thought, though, that comes along with this is a tinge of guilt, a little bit of knowing that we're now seven months down, and I don't know that I've managed to find that joy just yet. So how about you? How are you doing in 2020? And now what do we do? Now what do we do? Now that we're here at this place, what do we do? What I want to do this morning, I want to open up to a passage that I've gone back to a lot over the years and that I've spent quite a bit of time on in the last month or so. I wasn't planning on preaching this, like I said. I'd planned to move on in our series, but I just feel like God has laid this on my heart to step back just a little bit and maybe hit the reset button on 2020 and kind of reassess where we are. So John chapter 6. And before I read the part of the passage I want to focus on, I want to set the scene here as quickly as I can. Jesus' ministry has begun to, to ramp up. He's gone public now. He's doing miracles for large crowds. He's just fed the, the 5,000. He is uh, healing the sick. He's uh, casting out demons. Uh, he's teaching people. He's asking questions. He's getting noticed. He's doing all the things that you want to do in order to build a high public profile and get people following you, get people looking to you, get people talking about you. He's doing all the things you want to do if you want to grow your ministry, especially these big miracles. This is what we would call in the church world momentum, excitement, energy, electricity in the air at his gatherings. If Jesus can play his cards right right here, he'll, he'll, he'll have the makings of a grassroots political and religious revolution. If Jesus can just articulate his message in just the right way right here, he is going to be quickly headed towards critical mass to be the Messiah that everyone has been looking for. This thing feels like it's a powder keg that's about to explode. And once it does, it will be impossible to contain. And here's Jesus standing there with a match. And all he's got to do is light the fuse. And that's when we get to the sermon at the end of this chapter by Jesus. This is the biggest crowd he's had yet for his teaching. And he just needs to land the plane on this sermon. He's gotten their attention. He just needs to land the plane and people will be fired up. They will be rocking, and he will get recruits all over the place, and they will be, they will be moving now. And so here's how Jesus 
begins to conclude his big sermon, how he begins to kind of lay in the plane that would become the revolution rally for Jesus' ministry. John chapter 6, verse 47. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Well, this is really, this is good so far, Jesus. Sounds good, Jesus. Keep going, keep going. You've got them on the edge of their seat. You're talking about eternal life. You're talking about benefits of following you. Jesus is doing well here. People are getting, getting excited. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Man, Jesus was so close. He was so close to having that perfect kind of revolution rally sermon right up until that last word. Until you eat his flesh. What in the world is he talking about? And why in the world would he say something like this to all these people that have gathered around? I wonder what the disciples were thinking as they have, in, in large part, come to him because they're drawn to his teaching, but also because they think he's the Messiah that's going to lead this political revolution. And I, I wonder what they're thinking if they're listening to him and they're getting fired up and they're thinking, all right, I can already see this guy out in the crowd. That guy over there, that guy's going to be a good leader. That guy over there, he's going to be a general. That guy over there, I don't know what that guy's going to do, but I'm sure he's going to play a big role in this. I can see how this is all coming together. Well done, Jesus. And then he says, flesh. And they're like, whoa, hang on. What did he just say? Why would he do that? He, he had them. He had their attention. They were coming. All he had to do was, was, was say, who's with me? And everybody would have been like, whoa, let's go. And then he says, his flesh. I just wonder if Peter's not back there going, come on, Jesus. You're killing me. After that, things start to really go south in a hurry within Jesus' sermon. He doubles down in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They were like, that's weird. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Come on, Jesus. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Come on, Jesus. This has really gotten weird at this point. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. I mean, this is like vampire-type stuff. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue, and he taught in Capernaum. So this stuff just is crazy. Jesus moves on from, from the flesh part where he kind of gets people uh, like asking questions and he just totally doubles down. He says, yeah, let me talk about that. Like he realizes that people have questions and are kind of like, that's weird, Jesus. And he's like, oh yeah? Well, listen to this. And he just, he just goes after it. 
Now, if you've been around church for a while, a lot of you have a sense of what Jesus is talking about, talking about his, the bread of life and the body that is broken for us and the blood that is spilled and what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. And uh, you, you have an idea. We know the context and where this will go in Jesus's ministry. But these listeners had no clue. They had no idea what he was talking about. None. They were absolutely confused if not altogether offended. They were lost. And it was about here that many of them start asking questions. And so does Jesus kind of back up and soften things? Does he say, oh, oh, sorry, sorry. You all weren't ready for that yet. We'll come back to this in a year or two. You'll understand this eventually. I understand you guys were looking for this, but this is what I'm saying. Does he back up a little bit and say, sorry, I got ahead of myself a little bit? Nope. He triples down at that point. He goes after them. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Like, what is he talking about? This is really hard to understand. What is he talking about? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it is that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now there's a lot there that we could chew on and we could dissect and we could break apart, but that's not really my goal uh, this morning. But effectively what Jesus has done here in these few verses is is undercut them, insult them, and push them until they get very, very uncomfortable. I want to, as quick as I can, kind of break, break it down into three different things that he does. But effectively, he goes to these disciples. When it says disciples, it's not just talking about the twelve. It's talking about all the ones that were following him and listening to him. He goes to them and he challenges them on every single thing that they are tempted to put their faith in. And he says, this is what you're tempted to put your faith in. This is what you're tempted to put your faith in. And this is over here. And none of those things are going to be of any benefit to you at all. First, he challenges their beliefs and their expectations. Their beliefs and their expectations. When he starts talking about the bread and the flesh and the blood, he's very very clearly putting teaching to them that they had never heard and that they never expected. These people were looking for a military leader and a revolutionary, and they have come to a guy talking about eating his flesh and his blood. This is not what they were expecting. In verse 61, verse 62, he had had heard them asking the questions and saying, who is this Jesus anyway? We know Mary and Joseph. We know his mom and dad. Who is he to be talking like this? What makes Jesus think he's so special? They had trouble believing that he was the Messiah sent from heaven. So in verse 61, he says, do you have trouble with what you've seen? Do you struggle to believe in the the idea that I've been sent from heaven? Well, then you're really going to struggle when you see me go back to heaven. So if you're struggling right now with what I'm telling you, you're really going to struggle with what you're going to see here soon. Perhaps I'm not the right Messiah for you after all. The next thing that he goes and he says is he challenges their religion and their heritage. The flesh and the blood talk was already kind of off-putting. 
But then he goes and he makes statements like he did in verse 65, and he steps on some toes. He says, no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Well, any good Jew would take offense to this. The, the Messiah was for the Jewish people. He was for Israel. If anyone needed permission to come to the, the Messiah, then surely the Jews had it. Surely Israel had it. Who did he think he was saying the Father had to grant that right? authority could he say this there's no way jesus can say that they didn't have the permission to come to the father they were jews they had the permission more than anybody else on the planet and jesus was telling them that their heritage won't help them not in this moment they might be jews but that was not going to be enough if they were going to follow jesus the ultimate test was not so much their will but first god's will did he want them to follow? And this was a ticket to offending a Jew who claimed that following God was a divine right and a divine privilege given to them. Jesus wasn't supposed to be able to take that away. But they had put so much hope in that. They had put so much hope in their religion, so much hope in their, their identity as a Jew and their group uh, this group identity saying, I'm part of this group, so I'm good. They had put so much hope in that. And Jesus is telling them that hope is a false hope. You cannot trust in that and that alone. And then third, he challenges their own self-reliance. Whereas that second one, uh, challenging their, their heritage, may have been more offensive to them as Jews. I think this third one is perhaps a little bit more, uh, more uh, applicable to us as good individual, individualistic, uh, pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps Americans. Because as Americans, we are get-or-done kind of people. That is what we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be the people that get things done because we have the ability to do it. Because that is what we do. So verse 65, he may have pushed hard against the Jews who rely on their religious heritage, but in verse 63, he pushes back against us today. Verse 63, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The flesh is of no help at all. No help at all. No help at all. This is a hard statement for us to hear. You see, because for American Christianity, the way that it typically works for us is this. We make plans. We execute plans. We build resumes. We sell ourselves. We lay the groundwork. And we construct things. And we expect that things will go the way that we planned, the way that we designed, and the way that we wanted to. And if not, then we ask God where He was and how we can get back to Him fulfilling our plans. That is American Christianity. We make plans, we have dreams, and then we ask God to sprinkle a little holy water on those dreams, and we say, then we are blessed because our plans came true. We did what we had planned to do. That is American Christianity. We plan in our flesh, and then we ask God to sanction those plans by prayer. But Jesus says that's not how this works. Your work done in the spirit or done in the flesh is of no help at all. If the spirit you if it it's the spirit you need and it is the spirit you lack is what Jesus wants us 
to know. Jesus says, if you want the Spirit, then you best be listening to what I've got to say. You best be submitting to what I have to say, because the words that I have will bring you life. You don't understand them. You may not fully get them right now. But if you will trust me and you will listen to them, they will bring you life. Quit spitting out your words and saying that is where you find life. Listen to my words and heed them. Jesus says the reality is that so many of us are so tangled up with our own plans, with our own hard work, and our own personal resume that we never take time to listen to his words. He says, if you want to follow me, then you need the Spirit, and I'm setting that before you today. Friends, I wonder how true is this of us today? Do we build our spiritual life on our own human power and our own human deeds? Do we plan to succeed this fall in the remaining months that we have in 2020? Do we plan to succeed based on all the things that we have calculated? Have we calculated the risk of sending our kids to school versus doing something at home? Have we calculated this? Have we calculated that? Have we calculated what it would look like if we did it this way and we did it this way? And then we've built all of these plans and we said, oh yeah, Jesus, will you please bless these plans? Or have we said, God, I need you to lead me. And no matter what happens this fall, no matter what is coming for us in the rest of 2020, I'm going to trust you. I may not understand what's going on. I may not understand why we're having to deal with this stuff. I may not understand any of it, but God, I'm going to trust you. For some of us, what we've done for 2020 is we've just hunkered down. We said, you know what, i just got to get through tomorrow. I've got to get through the next hour. I've got to get through the next day. I've got to get through the next week. I've got to get through the, the, the spring. I've got to get through the summer. Now the fall's coming, you're thinking, i just got to get to fall break, and then i just got to get through the fall, and then i just got to get through the holidays. And listen, there's not necessarily a problem with just kind of withdrawing and saying, I've got to put my nose to the grindstone, and I've got to focus to get through this. That's okay. But the question that I have for you is how many of you are are hunkering down in your own little tower that you've built for yourself and saying, I'm going to trust this tower to protect me. I'm going to trust this thing that I've built around me, these plans that I've established. I'm going to trust them to protect me. Or how many of you have withdrawn and pulled back and said, I'm going to step into the strong tower. I'm going to step into the the, the shadow of, of, of God and I'm going to say, God, I need you to protect me. Now, I'm not saying that that you just need to go and just do whatever and say, I trust God's going to protect me, all is fine. What I'm saying is, have you pulled back and said, I'm going to trust in my own plans? Or have you pulled back and said, I'm going to follow God wherever he leads me in his plans? And where he leads you may not be where you think it is. It may sound like you've got to eat eat my flesh and drink my blood. It may sound like something that says, this doesn't make any sense to me, God. And so my question for you is, when you look at the fall, what are you trusting your life with? Are you trusting in your own plans, whatever those may be? Are you trusting that you will follow him wherever he goes? We're going to talk more about that next week and and, and what that looks like. For us, But today I just want to ask this 
question. Are you trusting outside, something outside yourself that are abo- is above and beyond your efforts? Because for so many of us, asking us to do that is just like these disciples that said, that's too much, Jesus. This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? I, I, I can't trust you in any of this. I can't. I, I, I mean, I realize I should trust you, but I know the plans that I am making. And I feel good about my plans. So can you just bless those plans instead of making me submit to yours? And God is saying, no, 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 I've got something else for you for the rest of the fall. I've got something else for you for September and October. And I can't tell you what that is. I mean, there's such a, such a, a, a narrow scope of what we know. I have no idea what September and October hold, hold. But what I do know is that no matter what happens in September and October, God is still saying, you have to be all in. All in. If things get better, you still have to be all in. You can't say, all right, God, we got this figured out down here now. We're good. If things get worse, you still have to be all in. You can't say, God, where are you at? I'm just going to have to figure this thing out on my own. You still have to be all in. Jesus strips each one of these people of all the things that they find comfort in. Their own plans, their own heritage, and their own religion. Their own understanding of what it is that they've been called to. He says, you don't get to have any of those things. You just got to trust me and take the next step. And then in verse 66, you read one of the saddest verses in all Scripture. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They said, Jesus, we can't do that. We're Jews first and foremost. We're Republicans first and foremost. We're Democrats first and foremost. We're public schoolers first and foremost. We're homeschoolers first and foremost. You can't ask me to give up on these things that I do. Because that's who I am. And they turned back and they no longer walked with him. So what about you? What happens when life and what God calls you to walk through doesn't line up with the plans that you have made? Where do you go? What do you do when what I ask you to do is too much? And if he's not asking you to do anything that feels like it's too much, then I wonder if you're following him at all. Do you complain that God isn't there? Do you fall apart when your plans fall apart? When the world turns to chaos, what happens to you? Do you want to walk away too? After all, if our lives fall apart just like everyone else's, then what good is it in following Jesus anyway? What advantage do we gain? Jesus had that question for his closest disciples too. Verse 67, Jesus says to the twelve, do you guys want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
you guys want to go away too? Peter says, where else would I go? What else would we do? We believe and we know, we don't fully understand it all, but we know that you are the one. Who else are we going to go to? There's no one else we would follow, Jesus. We know Peter didn't always get it right, even after this. But for this moment, his belief has helped him to stay the course. He knew that even when Jesus has pushed him way out of his comfort zone, when Jesus has stripped him of everything that he is tempted to rely on, when he challenged everything that he knew, he knew that if he wanted to find life in the midst of the chaos and the tragedy of life, that he needed to stay step for step with Jesus. And that would bring life. Friends, this morning as we sit on the doorstep of August, seven months down into a year that has kicked our tails, as we look toward these final few months, I want to ask you, where will you go when life gets hard? Where will you go when the chaos and the merry-go-round start spinning faster and faster and faster and faster? Where will you go when you start screaming, I just want off this merry-go-round? When life hits and gets hard, and it will, where will you go? None of us knew what was coming in February, in March. None of us know what's coming in September or October. Where will you go? What will you retreat to? Will you retreat into your flesh? Will you depend on your flesh? Will you build your own support structures and your own towers in the flesh? Or will you hear what Jesus says when he says that those things are no help at all? I'll tell you where a lot of people are going to go. They're going to run to the polls in November. And they're going to say, that's where I find my hope. That's the plans that I'm building. And Jesus says that's of no help at all. Will you go to Jesus for he has the words of eternal life? And Him only. Eternal life. That goes well beyond the blink that we will spend here together. Friends, our confession together must be in the midst of the chaos. I don't know what to make of any of this. But I know I have nowhere else to go to find life. Nowhere else to go. And so I want to read again my challenge from that sermon, the 1st of February. And I want to reissue it again. I stand on the words that I, that I said then. Are we more informed now? Yes. Will we be more informed in October than we were, than we were in February than we are now? Yes. But my challenge remains. Here's what I said. My heart in this series is that you would not walk away with sorrow, but instead that 2020 would be the year that you finally say, I'm all in. This year, 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, would that not just be, uh, not, not just be something that keeps you from saying all in, but that pushes you to say, I've got to be all in because where else will I go to find the words of eternal life? Would you die to yourself, your ideas, your passions, your agenda? Would you embrace the call to be a disciple and go all in? That years from now, you would look back on 2020 and you would say that this is it. 
this is the year when God showed me what it looked like to be all in. The challenge remains the same because you will find joy when you go all in, even in the midst of the merry-go-round that never stops. We're seven months in. We got five more to go. Let's go all in together. Because it's only Jesus that has the words of eternal life. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning our confession is that we too quickly run to our flesh for our justification, for our security, for our hope. We run to politicians, we run to arguments, we run to, um, man, you name it, there is no end to the things that Satan says, trust in this instead of trusting in you. And Father, our prayer is that we would reject all of those things. And that we would not walk away sad because the, the, the saying was too hard, the life was too much, the merry-go-round was too fast, the chaos was too chaotic. But instead that we would press in further and we would say, God, I'm going to hold on even tighter. I'm all in. If for no other reason, because our confession is that there is nowhere else we could go. Father, may you be glorified in that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Friends, this morning, Jesus is calling you to be all in. He's calling you to be all in. I don't know what that looks like for you. For some of you, that may mean the first time that you say, I'm all in, you're my king. For some of you, it may be a a, a re-up of being all in that you've not thought about since February. For some of you, it may be saying, God, I'm tired of trusting in my own plans and building my own plans. I'm exhausted. I just want to trust in you. Friends, that is our call this morning and every morning for the rest of our lives to take up our cross and follow him and be all in. He's calling you to that.